My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome, everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, and this month we're exploring the story behind the Snowbird Day School project. So a few months ago, I and the museum director, Barry Stiles, took a trip up to Cherokee to meet with Dr. Trey Adcock of Cherokee Nation and Gil Jackson, who's a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, to talk about a project that they did a few years ago in Snowbird, which is a community just outside of Robbinsville, North Carolina. Their project focused on capturing oral histories about the Snowbird Day School, which was a school established by the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the 1930s. But unlike a lot of the schools that we hear about um, established by the BIA, this was actually a day school that remained in the community. So it wasn't a boarding school. So students in Snowbird could go to the school and then go home at night, unlike a lot of um, children in Cherokee or other Native communities. The other thing that was unique about the Snowbird Day School is the teachers didn't actually follow BIA policy, which required teachers to punish students if they spoke in their native tongue. So because of this, the teachers actually allowed the children to develop both Cherokee and English language skills. Snowbird today is considered to have the largest population of fluent Cherokee speakers because of the way those teachers um, related to the students and allowed them to speak Cherokee. In other areas where children were not allowed to speak in their um, native tongue, the language has suffered greatly, and many younger Cherokee citizens don't know the language because of the ramifications of that BIA policy. So Gill, along with other community members, actually works really closely with different language schools and language programs in and around Cherokee to help teach the language to new learners. So he works with students from universities. He works with community members. He works with children. He's a teacher at the immersive school in Cherokee. So you'll you'll hear more about Gil's work and just the incredible impact that he's been able to make in his community. But the other really interesting thing about the Snowbird Day School project is that it's an excellent example of a community-born project. So in history and um, anthropology, fields like that, we focus a lot on how we can serve communities. And the best way to do that is to work with communities to accomplish their goals. So not to come into a community and say, hey, you should do this, but to really work with the community and identify what their needs are and to help support them. Um, And that's exactly what Trey and Gil did here. And so it's just a really great model of a community-born project. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm going to keep it brief because the interview is quite long, but hopefully it'll be impactful for you and we'll encourage you to learn more about this project and to maybe instigate projects within your own community. I'm Trey Adcock. I am an associate professor at the University of North Carolina Asheville. Finished in my 10th year. Um, I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. I direct the American Indian Indigenous Studies program at UNC Asheville. And 
That's about it. I'm Neil Jackson, also known as Do Yi. Um, I'm a Cherokee language speaker, and I'm also a Cherokee language uh, teacher. I teach at UNCA, I also teach at Stanford, and I also teach at Robbinsville High School, and I also teach with the Adult Immersion Program. So my day starts about 5 o'clock every single morning. It ends about 9, and I'm 70 years old, and <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm going to try. I'm trying to be retired. And um, so in addition to that, I cut wood for the senior citizens. I deliver wood to the handicapped people in my community. And um, there used to be 11 siblings, and uh, there's only five of us left, and I'm the only man in the, in the family anymore. So I have um, <clears throat> one daughter, one son. Um, my daughter has adopted four children, or is in the process of adopting the fourth child. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be a grandpa. Yeah, so that's me. He's been saying he's going to be retired for about 20 years now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you both meet? And can you tell us a little bit about how you guys got started on the project together? Oh, he, he used to email me. He used to email me, can I come over? Come on, can I come over? Can I come over? I said, yeah, finally, come on over. And I was the principal of the Cherokee Language Immersion School at the time. And uh, he was a um, professor at the university, so he came over and brought me gifts and, um, you know, necklaces and all kinds of things and uh, trying to make my acquaintance. <laughs> so let me tell you the true story. <laughs> Actually, and Gil, uh, Gil and I have talked about this, I met Gil at a chain, uh, an immersion class that used to be hosted by the museum um, of the Cherokee Indian. Um, that Bo Taylor was leading, and it was I was in grad school, and at UNC Chapel Hill they had a, a Cherokee language program too, and so uh, that that's where Gil was sort of the the one of the elders that was a part of that class, and um, so that's where I had first met him, and then he was the principal, and he kept emailing me. Hey, come hike, come hike, come hike. <laughs> but anyways, we, we, we became friends, and we, I think the first time we hung out was on a hike. And Gil said, let's go for a little hike. And I said, okay, great. I thought this would be like flat, walking by the stream sort of situation. 14 and a half miles later, my feet were bleeding. I was tired. He had to carry me home. That's how we met. <laughs> but I have to add... That was after I ran a 10-mile, I mean, a 10K race, road race. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, 14 miles, <laughs> nothing to it. So um, can you tell me about the Snowbird Day School project um, and, you know, how it started? I think the idea, well, not think, I know the idea came from my sister and another lady by the name, Shirley Oswald was my sister's name, <clears throat> another lady by the name of Nancy Jumper. They both attended the Snowbird Day School. Um, Shirley was like three years behind me. Nancy was probably about the same age as she was. And they talked about, uh, we should have a reunion, you know, because most of us that went through the Snowbird Day School were speakers. Probably around 95% of us were speakers, as Cherokee is the first language. <clears throat> and we didn't start to learn the language until we entered school. And it was quite a transition, but at any rate, I think that's what I remember. And um, my sister said, 
Let's, can you do it? And I said, yeah, but I don't think I just want to have a reunion. I just, I want it to be a little bit more than that. Um, and from there, I got in touch with Trey and asked him, would you be having interest in helping us? And um, he certainly uh, added a lot of expertise and um, added to the whole process of having a reunion. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's really kind of how it started. The conversation started, and at the same time, you know, sometimes these things just kind of work out together. Um, the university nominated me to go up for a Whiting Fellowship. And so, I mean, Gil and I talked, and I think we, you know, just kind of hashed out what this might look like. And I think, you know, along with the reunion, it was like, man, let's, this is an awesome opportunity to collect people's memories and stories about their experiences. And, you know, that turned into, you know, a $50,000 fellowship and the Eastern Band also... About a $38,000 grant from the Preservation Foundation. So that allowed us, which was really important in the life of the project. I mean, could it have been done without that? Yeah, maybe, but we didn't have any equipment or anything. And so all of it kind of came together perfectly. And um, the other person that was at the you know, sort of like those initial conversations was T.J. Holland, um, and uh, who was the tribe's cultural preservation officer. That's right. And um, anyways, all of it kind of came together. Great. For um, people listening who don't know what Snowbird is, could you explain in a few words what the Snowbird Day School is and why it was important to collect these stories? Yeah, so I mean, well, so Snowbird um, is 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 a place um and so you have the koala boundary and then 45 minutes or so s southwest um to an hour um is the snowbird community which is also a part of the eastern band um and the language um it's referred to as 2t 2te um and so the day school was really a part of it comes about really a in a historical period of reform. And so most people um, that know about schooling as it relates to American Indian people know about the large boarding schools, Carlisle, Chilaco. Um, less is known, less has been written about and studied about you know, these day schools, these smaller day schools. And so um, prior to the 30s, I mean, there were some day schools, but you primarily had a, a Quaker school district. Um, and a boarding school was a part of that. And so during this great kind of reform period of the 30s and 40s, um, they started transitioning away from boarding schools into uh, these day schools. And so the kids got to go home. And that's, that's a huge difference in these boarding schools where kids were often shipped a thousand miles away and they're away from not only their families but their communities. Um, so that's, that's kind of where that story starts. Um, and it runs for a perfect 30-year period, 1935 to 1965. Um, and it's important to know that history. I mean, one, it adds to Cherokee history. Um, and this project's really cool because, you know, the idea came, as Gil was saying, from Cherokee people. Um, you know, the, the voices and the stories are, are being told by Cherokee people. I think that's really important. I think it complicates uh, the history of schooling for Native people. Um, and um, yeah, that's kind of what the day school just on the surface was. Snowbird at the time <clears throat> was very isolated and there was a gravel road to get to, to and it was mountainous and it still is. 
but it is at least paved now. And uh, for 15 so many years, uh, teachers would come because it was isolated and you know, there's no social life. It's, um, I mean, I'm talking really isolated. One gravel road to get in, one gravel road to get out. So teachers were turning over constant, year after year. And so there was <coughs> no continuity. And, uh, and then um, I guess maybe the Bureau of Indian Affairs, they decided we need to do something else. You know, I mean, we, you know, constant turnover, it's not good. And um, I'm glad they at least thought of it. And uh, so they hired two, uh, a teacher, they interviewed a teacher from the University of Tennessee graduate program or graduate. And, um, and while he was uh, being interviewed, and Trey, you can tell the story better than I can. Anyway, they wound up um, hiring his pregnant wife. Is that correct? Yeah. And so they both, she wasn't a certified teacher, but she was an excellent teacher. So she, uh, it was, a, and the school itself was two rooms, huge building, uh, which is, you know, has been demolished. Uh, so she taught first, second, and third, and we didn't have kindergarten in a day, and he taught fourth, fifth, and sixth. So that's kind of what Snowbird Day School was about. Uh, I think what was so different about that day school is that they didn't really uh, follow um, government policy of assimilation. They allowed us to speak the language. Um, they allowed us to speak the language in the classroom, in the lunchroom, in the playground, anywhere else. But they also said, you know, you need to learn English because um, that's where you're going to be operating for the most part in the future. You know, we want you to learn English, but keep, keep what you got, which was very unlike what they had in the day schools up here at Soco, Bitcove, and Birdtown. Whereas uh, teach, we, there's plenty of stories about children being whipped for speaking the language. And um, <clears throat> so, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that the Snowbird community has one quarter of the speakers that are left on the reservation. And it is probably the, I think it is the smallest community. And there's six communities up here, one down there, and we have one quarter of the speakers left. And I, and I give the credit to those teachers that did not make us um, um, have to speak English. Mm -hmm. And so you, you attended Snowbird, correct? Yes, child. Can mm -hmm. you um, share a memory or two of your time there or something that stayed with you after your... Yeah, I think of what I remember, maybe one of the first, first two or three days, um, we had no ability to speak English because we were isolated. If we went to town, mom and dad went to town and shopped for groceries, but they walked to town. So... Um, the only thing I remember being able to say was, and I didn't even say it right, was Coca-Cola, instead of Coca-Cola and ice cream. And I remember the teacher one time at lunchtime said, I do kind of remember this. He said something to the effect of noon, noon time. Uh, it's like 12 o'clock. It's you're probably time to go eat. In Cherokee, Nuna is potato. So I put two and two together and said, oh, it must be time to eat. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so another time I remember um, needing to go to the bathroom. You know, I mean, we haven't worried about that long. I need to go pee. And uh, I had no idea what to say in English. So I went to one of the third graders, more than likely, I was first, my sister was second, my oldest brother was third. 
So I probably went to him and said, hey, I need to go pee. How do I say? And he mumbled something like, be excused or something like that. So I went over to the teacher and said, be excused or something similar. And she knew what I was talking about, so she just said, like, go ahead. And pointed with her finger. That's what I remember. But there's also other memories, too. Yeah. How did um, going to school like that with your community and being able to continue speaking your language, how do you think that shaped you as a child or how did it, how did it lead you to where you are today? I think I have just incredible pride and also thanksgiving to my parents who taught me and did, were not, and my, my mom went to a boarding school up here in Cherokee. At, and at some point in time, we didn't have a school in the community, so they had to come up here. And she said they cried for two days, her and her sister, maybe three days, something like that, and then they walked home. I have no idea how they got home, because in, in the day, it was probably a two-hour trip. The roads were curvy, and uh, a lot of it was gravel roads, so I don't know how they got home. I wish I'd, I wish I'd asked her. Um, I, I just have some incredible pride and thanksgiving for the ability to have learned the language and, um, and um, as I told you earlier, my day starts at 5, ends about 9 o'clock in the evening. That's almost like at least four days a week and then today I just came right from the adult immersion program which started at 8.30 and I uh, said I gotta go, gotta, got another meeting. Um, so I think that um, I'm blessed thoroughly, and that uh, I want to pass it on. Yeah, that's great. And for you, Trey, growing up Cherokee Nation, you know, what, what brought you to this place? You know, how was your upbringing different, and how has that shaped you in your, your current career? Well, uh, in terms of um, the more personal part of that, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't come from a, a family of speakers. Um, so to be a part of a project like this where the interviews are conducted in the language and even, you know, just to hear it, you know, I got to hear Amy Smoker speak and I've gotten to, you know, hear Ella Bird speak and I've gotten to hear Lou and Gil and, you know, to, to hear that is, you know, it's just a blessing of a lifetime. Um, and I think, you know, this project is, is about the history and documenting that history, but it's also about language preservation. And so to be able to contribute to that, I mean, we have... 30 interviews that are all in Cherokee. I mean, that is, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to, to, you know, have helped this project and, you know, most importantly, helped the community. Uh, we did have a reunion and for, you know, to, to, you know, we blew up some of the speakers. So, you know, we have the oral history piece, but we also have the digital piece of this, which is, you know, I remember when we first started, they were like, well, y'all might only get like 40 or 50 pictures. I, I don't know if you, you know, that there's going to be that much. And we ended up with 450 some odd pictures and we digitized all of those. And when we, we blew some of them up. And so when people came for the reunion, I mean, to see these elders like around the pictures sharing stories and laughing, I mean, you know, I, I could never have dreamed of that, you know. So that, that's the personal and professional side of it for me because, you know, when I went to grad school at Chapel Hill, I mean, you know, I wanted to work with Cherokee populations. And so I'm blessed at my job at UNC Asheville to work with students like Caden and I get to work with Gil. And so it's kind of all of it is together. And that's really cool. You know, I'm really interested because this was a community born project, as you said. You know, what were some of the lessons that you learned working this closely with the community? Either of you 
when trying to you know still have this like professional project and output were there you know obstacles that you overcame was there advice that you wish you would have had before you started or one of the things that we that um, was so neat was that there were so many pictures first of all we didn't think we'd find 20 even 30 pictures because nobody had a camera <laughs> and um, but luckily the teachers had a camera and they had tons of pictures and as we understand they were getting ready that the family that the children of the teachers they all live in Wyoming or Arizona, Arizona Colorado and they were getting ready to get rid of them I guess burn them maybe and throw them away and somehow one of their friends, the, the, the boy's best friend was David Crowe, who's a tribal member, went to the Snowbird Day School. Terry, I think you know the history on that a little bit better than I do. But, uh, but I'll get back to that. You get back. Anyway, when we got those pictures, a lot of them we didn't recognize. And so we brought the community people together and um, we met and met and met and said, now who's in this picture and who's in this picture? And some of them, we, most of them we could identify. Um, somebody would know somebody. Oh yeah, that's, uh, that's Frida Brown. That's, um, that's Jim Bird. That's um, Solomon Bird. That's, um, that's so-and-so. So that was such a, and um, we had elders that come in, you know, older than me. <laughs> and, um, and they were able to identify people that I couldn't um, because they could remember somebody how they looked when they were younger. Uh -huh. I appreciate you pointing at me. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, th I think working in community, I mean, I, I think, so I have two thoughts about that. I mean, one is I think like the project, um, it worked. You know, it worked. I mean, it was really successful. I mean, we were able, I mean, we published a book on it. Um, not, a, not an academic book, like we, we published, we took the photographs and we basically uh, made yearbooks for all the alumni. And that was amazing uh, to be able to hand those yearbooks to the, and it was just so awesome to watch laughing and again, like, you know, sharing the pictures, like, like you're in fourth grade and you get a yearbook at the end of the year, you know? That was super cool. So it, it worked, it, it is hard. Uh, to, um, and I think as an academic, you're trained to control processes and, and methodology, and this was not that, and um, which made it even more rewarding. And I, I personally think, and I don't know how Gil feels about this, one of, the, one of the, the first things that we did, and I think it was one of the best things that we did, is we went to the community and we, we said, we found some photos, but you know, like, I think culturally it was appropriate. We ate, we had, I think it was at the, um, was it the, the boys club in Snowbird? We kind of introduced ourselves, we showed some of the pictures, and I think that allowed the community to, even though they knew who we were, you know, to see that you know, this was something they could really get behind and support. And it was cool even just about that night, is people started showing, tell, uh, sharing stories you know, about their experiences. And so I think there's also some healing and, um, that came about for that. And it was just, the whole experience is really cool. And, um, Every part of it, we tried to get community feedback and let the community guide the process. And so they were very willing to participate? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think the important part was this was not an idea that originated at the university, and we went and said, hey, this is a good idea. I mean, as Gil was saying, this came from the community. You know, my job was to get out of the way and just bring resources and, and try and help. 
And I, so I, to me, it was a great example of, of community-driven, and I think that's why it, it worked and people have good memories of it. I think the only thing that we controlled, Trey, was I wanted to, to do the interviews because I'd had some training from you folks, yeah. And um, I thought I did a good job of interviewing people because I know that somebody can mention something and I'll put it back into my head and 30 minutes later I said, you mentioned this a while ago and it's all in the language, but if you don't use it in the language, um, you miss so much. And um, so I, I kind of give myself credit for that, but also give credit to the students at your program that taught me some interviewing skills back. What? Almost 50 years ago, 40 years ago, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That is amazing. Um, and you had you had a lot of students involved too, right? We had students. I mean, like so. For instance, like Gil was saying, I think one of the things that really worked is, you know, Gil was doing the interviews, and so you had elders speaking to elders in the language. And I think I have seen some other projects where. Um, the interviewer, even if they're from Cherokee, is speaking in English to an elder, and Gil can talk more about that. It, it works, but it doesn't work as well as like Gil sitting down with Miss Bird and talking in the language. So my job, and a lot of the students' job, we, they just ran the equipment, um, and they helped with the recording and taking pictures. Yeah. My students would enter metadata, so as we were digitizing photos, we created an entire database, so they learned how to do metadata and what that meant. And then Gil had students from his Cherokee language classes that have worked on translations. So I mean, if, I, if you look at the life cycle of, the, of knowledge, I mean, it's totally circular and holistic. Yeah, and we're still working on translating some more into English so that we can um, have them available for people who don't speak but are learning and use that as a resource. Yeah, and I'll just say one last, like, I'll tell you, so one of the students that was involved, um, her family is from Snowbird, um, Dakota. And Dakota was a student in my class at that time, and her grandmother was the sh chef, and her, her name was Zena Rattler. And so I, I, I didn't know Zena, I didn't know who she was, but almost every interview, people were expressing their love for Zena and her cooking. And... So we had gotten these batch of photos and Dakota was in class and I was just telling my class about this project. And I put up on the screen one of the earliest photos we had digitized of Zena Rattler. And I just remember Dakota's reaction. She had never seen a, a photo of her grandmother, um, particularly at that age. And she, you know, the tears just started coming out. You know? And that, that story played out over and over again because the photos are, I mean, you know, Frida in the blue dress. You know, there's just so many amazing photos. And so, yeah, it just was, you know, super cool. Yeah, that's phenomenal. So where do the materials live now? So that is a challenge. I think one of the, the best things we did, and this, I, I think, came from both Gil and I think some of the women that were doing the, is, is the idea of the book. Um, and so again, we made these yearbooks and we did it, I think it's like 250 of the photos are in this book. So it's a picture book, it's a yearbook. So I mean, so that's one place it lives. Um, we did the special edition of the Journal of Cherokee Studies. And if, if you look at how we did that, we took parts of the oral histories. We wanted those to say, we just wanted to present the information back to the community in a way that was accessible and they could engage with. So it lives in the Journal of Cherokee Studies. Um, a lot of it lives 
on Google Drive. And so I think it is a conversation that we are still continuing with the tribe in a sense of where is the digital infrastructure to preserve these materials moving forward. Um, and so I'll just say real quick and I'll be quiet is that one of the early promises of this project was for all of the materials uh, to be housed at the um, Juno Alaska Museum. One of the things that they talk about in the interviews without the exception was Zena, the cook. And I would say she was a very good cook, but given the time in the day, we were also very hungry. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, food was, you know, like, wow, we got milk, we got dessert, we have a meat, we have beans, we have mac and cheese, and at home, you know, during the summer, it was pinto beans in the morning, pinto beans in the evening, and maybe something in at lunch. Uh, I'm not taking anything away from Zena's cooking. She definitely fed us good and gave us as much as we wanted to. And, I, and I'm sure she understood, you know, where we were coming from. And, um, and um, so it was very generous with the food. And, but the, the other thing about the food thing was um, students went in and served the food daily. That was part of our job. If you were a good student, you get to go serve, you get to go serve, he doesn't get to go serve. <laughs> yeah, and Trey would never gotten to serve. <laughs> Did they have yeah. food? One of the students, that's, that was basically what her uh, undergraduate research was on, was on the food at the, the day school. So like for, from 35 to like 49, 50, they, they almost were self-sustaining in the sense that they were growing all the food. And then it changed and they started contracting it out. Well, part of it, Trey, could have been that big flood in 1951 where it washed all the topsoil. It was a hundred-year flood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and there's nothing but rocks there. That's still one of the best stories is the story about the horse. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, one of, the, one of the best stories we heard, at least I heard, I, th I just think it's really funny, is in it, um, you know, and we, had, we found this really amazing photo of Jesse Crow, um, who was... He, he was the bus driver, he was the maintenance man, he, he, he did everything. Yeah, he was Mr. Lee's by that point right-hand man. And um, anyways, there's a beautiful picture of him with, a, with uh, getting ready to plow a garden with the horse. And so I think one of the questions was like, you know, do you recognize any of these photos? And anyways, some, you know, you ever recognize the horse? And anyways, the story came out, the horse got into some patch and got sick. And they had to, they had to put this horse down. And really, they had asked for a tractor. That was part of the story, too. They had asked for a tractor from the BIA. And the, the kind of response, in typical BIA fashion, they didn't get a tractor, they got a horse. And so the horse ends up getting sick, and they put this horse down. But in the years that followed, they'd forgotten where they had actually you know, buried this horse. So 1951, you have a 100-year flood, and it just, Miss Lee, with her camera, documents I mean, is writing on the photos minute by minute, different parts of the campus. And I mean, you can almost watch the flood through these pictures. And in this process, the horse reemerges. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think that the land was any good for farming or too good for farming. But I do think they brought in a lot of topsoil too. 
because the teachers had a little garden and uh, main, Jesse Kerr, the maintenance man, had a small garden. But I think that's the only place they could afford to put. Um, but talk about a little bit about the construction cost. Trey, that was a pretty amazing story for me. Yeah, and you'll have to refresh my memory in terms of the exact cost. But I mean, it was, so the, the Brown family gave the land to the tribe to make way for the building of the school. I thought somewhere I read they bought it, but who knows? The tribe bought it from the Browns. Yeah, yeah the tribe bought it from the Browns. For, you know, not too much money, but they bought it from the Browns. They, 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 they built the school, and I can't remember, how much did we say it co- the whole school cost? Less than, less than, less than 40000 Oh, I thought, it, wasn't it like $6,000 or something like that? Oh, yeah, it was. It was like $6,000 to build this whole school. And it's, you know, the, so we did, so one of the things we did is we went to down to Morrow, Georgia, to the Bureau of Indian Affairs archives. And uh, the entire you know, history of the school was there. One of the things I was really interested in was to try and find the blueprints for the school. Because um, I had worked on a, a project in graduate school on the East Carolina Indian School. And if you go to the state archives, the entire blueprints are there. And there are the blueprints down in Morrow of some of the other day schools that Gil mentioned, like Soko and um, Big Cove and all that. Um, but there were no blueprints for this school. Um, but what you did see was a record of you know, the construction of the school and then adding on of the school. So like when they did a teacher's quarters and things like that, when they added the uh, cafeteria. You know, so you can sort of see the physical life of the school. So did it grow? I mean, the, like when you were a student, were there like, say, 30 kids there, but then 20 years earlier, were there more students going or was it less? I mean, how did the population of the school The population of the community kind of dictated uh, the enrollment and it didn't change too much because uh, from my memory, we had a fairly high death rate for you know, infants. So it kind of stayed pretty much the same. Uh, one of the things that uh, relative to construction is that we lived across the river, my family, and several of us that um, were in that little community um, that we call, um, what do you call it? Um, anyway, where I live. But it was across the river, and um, we would have to walk to school, and um, the, the bridge was only probably this high off of the river, and oftentimes it would flood, so it would be coming up, and we wouldn't be able to come to school. So somewhere along the line, the sheriff and his department built the swinging bridge. Was that, is that correct? Yeah. The Graham County Sheriff's Department and the deputies, I suppose, they built a huge swimming, uh, swinging bridge that allowed us, you know, if it's raining and, you know, it's flooding, allowed us to walk around and come across the, the swinging bridge. And there's even one picture where it's only, I think it's that flood, isn't it? The river is only about this, um, well, it's below the bridge, maybe a foot. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I think, you know, the other point about your question is, like, from all, rec- I mean, it, it, you know, any, I mean, Cherokee people wanted the school. I mean, they wanted a good school. They wanted, I mean, in that school, I think the other part of that story was that it was not simply a school. I mean, I mean, the community came to, it was a place. And so, like, on Sundays, the men would play volleyball. They would show movies there. They would have uh, health clinics. And, I mean, it was, it was, I would say it's more of a community gathering place than just a school. So in terms of the attendance, I mean, there were ebbs and flows. Um, when the leads get there in 49.50, I mean, I think one of the hall- hallmarks of their, their tenure there, I mean, attendance was like around 95%. So they were getting good attendance at that school. 
you know, but it was a day school. So like there was one example of one of the substitutes not being nice to a kid. I mean, being rough physically. And the, you know, the kid went home on the school bus, told his mama, and the mama got on the school bus the next day and wrote it and addressed the teacher. And that was the end of that. Well, that, that teacher was a substitute teacher and didn't follow or, or followed the BIA policy. If they speak Cherokee, you gotta punish them. Gotta make sure they don't speak Cherokee. So they, they followed that policy and you either beat them or you pinch them or you do something you know, painful to make them stop. So <laughs> the next morning, she, the mom jumps and she said, I'm here to kick somebody's ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are stories like that, but I think most of those are if, up here. Yeah, they're up here, or uh, they were substitute teachers. They were substitute teachers prior to the Lees. So, what's the future of the project look like? One of the things that we've talked about is, is it still needs to be done. There's still some speakers that we didn't get to interview. I'd like to finish that. The other project you, you and I have talked about is interviewing veterans who, who, who are speakers. And there's some really wonderful stories about veterans who were speakers. Uh, Robert Younger told me one time that um, I don't think they allowed natives to, um, what do you call them, um, sign up in Asheville. So I think he had to ride to catch a bus to somewhere to sign up uh, away from here maybe up in Virginia, I kind of forget. So that's one of the things that we've talked about, but there are some still, still some things that uh, I'd like to finish with the Snowbird Day School Project, because there are still some people. And not only that, but we've lost several of those speakers who uh, alumni since then. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, COVID has taken a toll. I mean, I, I did a presentation of the, the, the project over in the Yellow Hill community and a man named Ruben Tisateski had, had come to me and said he wanted to do it, basically take, take the model project and, and do it in the Yellow Hill community, and he passed away because of COVID. So, I mean, COVID is, ta is taking a toll. I mean, for me, I think the big thing is the infrastructure. Is like, how, you know, I think that piece has to be figured out because I'm petrified that Google Drive is gonna die any day, and then we lose all of this. And so, I, you know, that, that piece is like, a high priority, critical. What about like an exhibit or anything? We, we did a traveling exhibit. We did it at UNC Asheville. And so it's there. We, we blew those pictures up into like 36 by 30 and with captions and stuff. I mean, it's really cool. And we gave all those materials because the, the place where the, the community center, which was built over top of the day school, um, has gone through renovations in the, in the Snowbird community. And so now they have a new building that's opening here in the next few months, and so all of that material has gone back to them to, to create a, hopefully an installation. You know, the other subject that they talked about continuously was um, the 30-foot slide. The food in the playground is where a lot of the interviews, and it was just, like as Gil said, it was, it was just really special to watch them all laugh. And Trey doesn't think I'm too smart, but when I was in the third grade, now this is the absolute truth. There's no, I mean, I would swear on the Bible, I would. And uh, the, the teacher would put me in sixth grade for math, you know, in third grade. And when I was in the second grade, put me in the fourth grade. But then that meant I had to go to the next room. But Trey doesn't believe that. He doesn't think I could do that. I believe it. But I, I'd be curious. This, right, this raises a question for me because my, my great uncle went to school 
and graduated from the sixth grade. And that was the highest grade you could go. But then my uncle could graduate from the tenth grade. And that was the highest grade that they had at that time. So what was, what was the highest grade that, that you had? Well, we had sixth grade, and then we had to transition into public school. That's another story, too. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but the reason that I think I excelled in math, the system that you guys have, the Arabic system, and what we have is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You start at zero, you go to nine, then you start over. And you go to 20 and you start over. And um, I excelled. English is backwards. It mm -hmm. threw me, it throws everybody who's a speaker. And it's very difficult. Um, it's so different. Our language is so different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're, you're right. The, 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 um the transition out of the school, I mean, that's, we haven't really talked about that, but yeah. the, cl the closing of the school in 1965, I mean, you know, that's a, we'll talk a lot about that. Talk about that yeah, 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 so why did it close? And, yeah. I, I think that, you know, like, what, kind of what we found is, like, there's just so many, there's so, there were a lot of forces kind of at play at one time. You know, I mean, it, it is the, the period of desegregation, and that, I don't think that directly affects the closing. Um, but that is, you know, it's mid-60s, so you have Brown versus Board of Education in 54, and you have this desegregation effort throughout the South, so I think that is a force that is out there. Um, I do think that, um, you know, 1960s, you, know, you also have two federal policies at play, which is termination and relocation, where the federal government is, is doing their best to sort of rid themselves of the so-called Indian problem. So I, I think it is, you know, we're not going to spend the money to, to keep the school alive. We're going to push all the kids out into the, the broader um, Graham County School District. And so they, they, they get the news like in 59 and 60, and so the, they start phasing kids out from that point. And so the classes get smaller until it closes its door in 65. And actually another topic that got a lot of attention is, is sort of when they got that news is they started taking field trips or inviting the, the, the surrounding white kids in that school to come to the day school and they would, ha they would sort of meet and introduce the, the kids. Mm -hmm. And so we got some really good stories around, mm -hmm. around that. You want to tell about Lee's story about the watch? Yeah, I mean, so, well, you, you, you tell it. You can tell it better than I can. When Lou transitioned to seventh grade, they met up and I think they were in the same room. And Lou's looking at her watch, you know, looking at that late girl's watch, and, and she says, do you want to wear it? And Lou says, yeah. And she couldn't believe it. And they, became, they, stayed, child, they stayed lifelong friends, you know. So the, the, we, we did get a lot of stories of that. And then, the, I mean, the, Lee, the others, so Gil mentioned this, when we did have the reunion, one of the cool parts about that is the, the husband and wife, who were the teachers, they get... Um, the BIA transfers them out to uh, Gallup, New Mexico, to teach on the with the Diné or the Navajo Reservation. All of when we had the reunion, all of their kids came back for the reunion, um, and they brought. One of the cool things was is when the, when Mrs. and Mr. Lee left, the women in the community, including his mom, made blankets for them. A blanket. A blanket for mm -hmm. them, and when the kids came back, they brought the blanket. So it was, a really, it was a really neat time. One of the things that they had to do in the transition was that they, 
there's the superintendent, I suppose, maybe principal, I'm not sure. But anyway, the government saw that uh, there could be some resistance and some anger and some, you know, you're taking our kids and putting them in public school. So they sent him out into the community and he knew, he happened to know my grandfather pretty well. And my grandfather used to be the chief's advisor. Also, I think the translator for the tribal council at one point in time, as, I, as well as tribal council member. So he met with him and said, can you gather the community together and say, you know, we have, we have some stuff that we need to talk about. So my grandfather brought in some of the leaders in the community and he explains to them, you know, this is, going, this is going to happen and we want it to be as smooth as we can and it's going to happen in this manner. And also we've, we've asked the government if they will supply Mrs. Lee in the early grades for one year or at least maybe two years to help with the transition. So they had a big community meeting and everybody would talk in Cherokee and then he would interpret and talk to Mr. Carpenter in English because he was very, very well versed uh, in English. Um, so that was a, a really critical thing to happen in the transition. And, and he said there were, there were fights at first, uh, you know, some people, kids saying, you're just a damn Indian or, you know, something like that. You know, how do you see your work in the immersion school as, as a continuation of your influences in your childhood? Because obviously Snowbird's unique, right? You know, how do you see the Snowbird community helping younger Cherokees to learn the language? Right now, I don't see that. What I see happening is um, the university students are coming to work in our summer program, in our summer language program. And so most of these uh, students are non-Indian. They learn the language enough that they can come and teach in our program. Most of the people who speak are not healthy. They're not, they don't have the energy that I have. Uh, I'm not bragging, but that's just the way it is. And because of diabetes and heart issues and other kinds of things, they're just not able to help. Um, perpetuate the language. So we're relying on these young people and the, I talked about the adult immersion program. Those are young people. Um, but what I've noticed in our group is everybody's overweight. And I, and I said, folks, we have got to take care of our bodies and you know, you have got to take care of that. You gotta take that responsibility. You are our hope. You know, that you're gonna perpetuate the language because you are learning and you're doing awesome. Uh, incredible job of learning the language, and it is an incredibly hard language to learn. Uh, just, just to give you an example, the first word is usually the question. The verb comes last, like water I want. As a, as a, as a simple um, example of how the language works. Um, so it's completely, nouns always stay the sound, same, almost always say the same. They don't go plural. Verbs go plural. Just some examples. Uh, give me the solid. Give me the liquid. Give me the flexible. Give me the kitty cat, it's alive. I mean, five different categories for many, many verbs. We have 10 different people in our language. You, you two, all of you, all of us, all of you guys except me, um, yeah, 10 different people. 
Yeah. Are you having any success with um, younger learners becoming fluent? I have one in high school that's gone through the summer language program, excelling. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's small, but it's um, yes. I'd say we are. Um, and there's another girl in my class at the high school, excelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. It seems like a language to me. The only way you can learn it is to hear it. Mm -hmm. You just can't read it on a piece of paper. No, not, you not can't. Not you have to hear it and you have to speak yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but, but I, it does bring a good point that we were talking about earlier. I mean, at least to me. I mean, I could be wrong and everyone can disagree and that's cool. But like with this project, you're right about the elders in terms of like engaging with these materials on a computer. I mean, most of what we found is they want books. But how, I think the question is, is like for, for Gil's grandson, who is a good speaker and his granddaughter, who, I mean, they're good speakers. How do they access these materials? But that is, I think, the struggle is, you know, how do you make it accessible to the elders and also the next generation of speakers? That's important to hear it. Yeah. Well, I mean, for your grandson to hear you yeah. 30 years from now and others, I mean, that, that'll be priceless. We have people come to us that want to hear, oh, you have my grandmother's yeah. interview mm -hmm. from 1972, yeah. and she passed away in 1973, yeah. and it's like, yeah, we yeah, do, we can share that. Absolutely. So that's safeguarding that for the future is really, it's important. Again, thank you so much for listening and a huge thank you to Trey and Gil for sharing their experience with us. To learn more about their project and to see some images that they scanned from the project, you can visit our website, www.foxfire.org. If you scroll to the bottom of our homepage, you'll see excerpts from blog posts. It'll be the most recent one that you can click on and check out. Again, some of those images and more information about the project. And if you love Foxfire as much as we do, um, please let us know what you think, share your thoughts, subscribe, um, never miss an episode, share with a friend, do all of those things that help us reach more people. Also, we have a wonderful membership program if you want to help support this and other projects coming out of the museum. Your support as a member goes directly back to the museum and helps us continue our 55-year-plus legacy of working with students and our community. We have a variety of memberships available to fit your needs from individual to family memberships and even a digital offering for those who can't come to the museum in person. You can find all of that at www.foxfire.org slash members and make sure to tune in next month we'll have another great podcast for you we'll talk to you later if you don't like that you can throw it away i like it <laughs>